I'm Daniel Fontaine, and you're listening to BC Polycock, and I'm your co-host. And I'm Bill Tillman. On today's show, we're going to have Don Davies. He's the Member of Parliament for Vancouver Kingsway. He also serves as the NDP Critic for Health and the Deputy Critic for Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. And Bill, I couldn't think of anyone else we should have on this week. Somebody who wants to talk about health and emergency preparedness. And those have been very topical issues for us the last uh, few weeks. Yeah, I mean, obviously with BC Polytalk, we're, we're talking about COVID-19, its impact on so many different things, but particularly health. Uh, and as Don Davies, not only is he the health critic for the NDP, but he's uh, one of the most veteran members of the Federal Health Committee. So he's got a really good in-depth knowledge on that. And I think, you know, we want to talk to him about the federal response, the holes he sees, what steps need to be taken next from his perspective. There's just a, a raft of questions. We could talk about nothing else but COVID-19, but I'm sure we'll go beyond that. Yeah, and, and I, I know Don sits on the Select Standing Committee for Health, and I know he's also been a champion for two things that I'm familiar with, given that I work in long-term care, and he's been championing uh, a national health human resources strategy and also been supportive of getting the federal government to rethink that infrastructure bank that just can't seem to get uh, those dollars spent. We have over 400 uh, very old care homes in the country, and Don's been an advocate for tearing those old care homes uh, down and uh, putting some infrastructure dollars in there to rebuild and make sure that those places uh, are physically built to make sure people are protected and don't harm them. So I'd like to talk to him about that and see why those recommendations from the Select Standing Committee have see still not seen the light of day, notwithstanding the fact that uh, the government's been sitting on them for a couple of years. Uh, exactly. And one program that I want to talk about is what the NDP has proposed and what's been talked about for many years, a national pharmacare program. And I think given the COVID-19 crisis and everything else that's going on and a minority parliament where the NDP potentially hold the balance of power, and I think the Bloc Québécois is also very sympathetic to that, uh, will this move uh, pharmacare up the agenda for Prime Minister Trudeau and, and the overall government? Um, so that's that's a key question to me going forward. There are so many issues and pro I, I can't wake up in the morning and uh, turn on the TV at 8.15 in the morning and there's another program that's been announced. So it's quite interesting. And I'd like to talk to, to Don a little bit about the NDP's proposal on that because they were trying to encourage the government uh, to not have all these boutique programs, but to look at more of a universal program where everyone would get some funding and then at the end of the year, they'd claw it back. And, and I note that the, the government didn't uh, take the NDP's recommendations on that, but uh, no doubt, one could argue that pretty much almost every Canadian is now covered by CERB. So they're almost uh, to the point where they've gotten to the NDP position without actually doing it. Yeah, a guaranteed annual universal annual or sorry, a guaranteed universal wage is something that they've talked about for a long time. And I think we we have indeed moved closer to it. Uh, lastly, I think I, I want to talk about the uh, rather astonishing attack on Dr. Teresa Tam, our national uh, public health officer, by a conservative MP who nobody practically knows. But uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, it's been widely condemned uh, outside the Conservative Party leader and the leadership candidates. So we'll ask Don Davies about that when we meet him in a few minutes. Well, I'm very glad you didn't mention his name. I don't think we need to repeat it on this program because I think universally people are uh, pretty much outraged at what he what he was saying. But uh, before we we, uh, we bring Don onto the show, I, the last thing I'd like to talk to him about is virtual parliament. I see that that's now an experiment that's underway and whether or not virtual parliament is here to stay and whether or not it's going to be just a temporary thing during the pandemic. So uh, without further ado, why don't we invite Don Davies on to uh, have a chat? Sounds good. BC Polytalk thanks Harbour Air for supporting the show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show. 
Don Davies, welcome to BC Polytech. It's great to be with Bill and Daniel, both of you. Thanks very much. Listen, we really wanted to talk to you in particular as the NDP health critic, a longtime member of the Federal Health Committee. Uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis has been gripping our country for, for weeks and months now. Uh, what's your general reaction to how the federal government has handled this crisis? I think it's varied, Bill. Um, uh, I think at the beginning of the crisis, the federal government was quite frankly slow to, to recognize the, the depth uh, of this crisis. I think they took a very overly cautious uh, uh, view of things and were very slow behind other countries, in fact, in taking measures that I think would have been advisable earlier on. I think they've improved over time um, on both a health and a uh, economic perspective. Um, I think they've shown a flexibility in making changes where the public and other opposition parties have have indicated we need to do so. Um, I, I do think there's a structural flaw in the way the government's approaching this there. Even though in a minority government, they tend to go behind closed doors and then come up with their program and they wait for the other parties or the public to critique it before they make changes. And I would prefer to see more cooperation upfront in the design of the programs. I think that would save time and, and help get necessary economic supports and better health policies out the door quicker. Yeah, and uh, there's probably two aspects to the overall federal response that are necessary. One on the health side, uh, which you're very involved with uh, as a committee member on the health committee and an MP, and the other on the economic side. What's your NDP response, uh, or what, what does the NDP think we should be doing next? Well, I think the general consensus from around the world is that we have to test, test, test. You know, in order to uh, determine when we can start to reopen our economy and safely put people back into our communities, we need to have a really, really scientifically solid idea of where we're at. And the only way to know that is to have um, solid testing data. I, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, I know, for instance, Canada was slow to adopt a serum-based test, which is the test that determines whether we have antibodies in, in, in our system, as opposed to the swab, which tells you whether you have an active COVID-19 virus in your body at the moment. And we're going to have to ha have a statistically significant sample of Canadians, uh, particularly in different regions, because it's been described that we don't just have one COVID-19 outbreak in this country. We have a multiplicity of regional outbreaks. So we have to know where those outbreaks are, what the level of infection is, um, how many people have immunity before we can we can go forward? So I think we need to really ramp up our testing protocols and 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 get a lot of Canadians tested in the next weeks and months ahead. So Don, uh, you're a member of Parliament for British Columbia, and there uh, the uh, BC NDP are in power here in British Columbia, and I I can't help but ask you the question around looking at what's happening in. Uh, Ontario and Quebec and, and unprecedented the, the call for the military to be going into places like long-term care and I think you know that's my area that's where that's where I work in but can you comment on what you think British Columbia has done well and in, 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 when you juxtapose it against say Ontario or Quebec is there any observations you'd have and just generally how you feel about seeing military going into places like long-term care in, in places like Ontario and Quebec? That's a great question Daniel. Um, I guess I would answer by saying I, I think uh, British Columbia, who I think has been leading the country in terms of of, of effectiveness of response, it's it's down to two things. One is their speed 
of movement and second is the policies they've adopted. If you look at speed, I'll give you an example. You may remember um, that there were calls for us to close the Canada-US border and Prime Minister Trudeau did so, but he, he still left it open to um, non-essential travel. And uh, I think it was Health Minister Adrian Dix, uh, uh, as well as myself and others that said, that wasn't strong enough. We needed to close it entirely uh, and leave it open. Uh, leave it open only to essential commerce. Uh, and the Liberals did do that. I think two or three days later. So you could see an example where the BC government was just a little bit faster and a little bit ahead of the curve. Uh, so I think they've taken quicker action. Second on policy, and you'll uh, know uh, more about this than I do, Daniel. In terms of, I think policies to address the uh, outbreaks in the long-term care facilities. Uh, I think BC was the first jurisdiction that uh, decided that they would take policies to make sure that people could only work in one facility. So we stopped the spread of people who were working <clears throat> in a multiplicity of settings. Um, and I think they've even injected, I think it's $10 million uh, per month, if I'm not mistaken, or per year, to help elevate the standards and help long-term care facilities um, I think address a long-standing problem to attract more uh, qualified staff uh, into the that sector. So I, I think those are an example of of, of concrete progressive steps that uh, the NDP government in BC have adopted that I think would be well to be adopted at the federal level, to be frank. So just as a bit of a follow-up, I know you are on the standing Select Standing Committee for Health, and I know that, uh, I think it was last year or maybe the year prior to that, one of the recommendations that the committee made was to look at developing a national health human resource strategy, and there was another recommendation to have places like long-term care homes have access to the infrastructure bank so we can start getting rid of these four-bed wards that we see in places like Ontario and Quebec, where we know the covid has gone rampant throughout these homes, but it's pretty hard when you have just a sheet between you uh, to kind of prevent the spread. Any thoughts on that? I mean, those recommendations are still there. Is there any hope that those recommendations are gonna be picked up by the prime minister, by the cabinet and actually move forward? Uh, because as we've seen, the, the recommendations came from the Select Standing Committee, but there's really been no action since. Yeah, well, hope springs eternal. You know, I, I think what this uh, one of the maybe silver linings of the present uh, crisis is that they have exposed long-standing structural problems in our healthcare system that uh, people like yourself and others who are intimately familiar with the sector have identified and have been uh, bringing to the attention of government, but really with, with, with not much action. I think, I think having exposed these, these uh, structural problems, I think we have an unprecedented opportunity frankly, in, in the months ahead to, to actually take action on them, even though they were, they were warranted long ago. Um, you know, one idea that I, I, I think it came from David Klemenhaga in Alberta, I can't take credit for it, but I think is an excellent idea, is to create a federal transfer for the long-term sector. And this would be dedicated funding from the federal government to the provinces and territories who agreed to a certain set of criteria to access the funding. Um, things like, um, you know, uh, making sure we have good wages and benefits, making sure there's proper patient um, uh, care aid ratios, those sorts of things. Uh, if provinces agree to meet those, then they'll, they'll get the federal funding. And, and in terms of the human resource strategy, a number of healthcare stakeholder groups have been pushing that. The CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, has been making that a major 
uh, plank in their their lobbying on the hill for the last three years. They're pointing out across the healthcare sector where we have shortages. And again, unfortunately, it took a crisis like this to render those bare. So policymakers have no excuse now to say they weren't uh, aware of it. And now is the time, I think, to push very aggressively after this to to address those. Don, uh, we recently had former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore, who you know quite well, on as a guest, and I jokingly said everyone's a socialist now uh, with this crisis going on. Uh, he, he didn't accept my premise, but uh, I'm wondering uh, more specifically, there's been talk for many years about having a, a universal guaranteed wage or, or salary, uh, and we're now seeing so many different federal programs and provincial programs. Is that something that uh, you think is, is more feasible now and people would think about more than being kind of a, a bit of a wild idea? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think one of, of the dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of lessons that we can draw from, from the last few months, I think one of the most profound is that we can make profound change quickly. I think um, people can accept and adapt uh, in a way that maybe we weren't aware of before. And, and so um, things like uh, a UBI, which has been talked about uh, for some time, and by the way, I, I think has got some uh, support from all sides of the political spectrum. You know, Hugh Siegel, uh, Senator Hugh Siegel, I think has been a strong proponent of this as a conservative in the Senate for some time. Um, because I think, I think what we're seeing is that uh, something like a universal guaranteed income or benefit has the twin advantages of being a very efficient uh, way that reduces bureaucracy, which is why I think conservatives tend to be attracted to the idea. And it also is a prime way to make sure every single Canadian at least has sufficient resources to be above the poverty line, which is why progressives and those on the left like it. So um, in, I, I think... I think on a number of issues across across the political spectrum and, and in the political world, from energy policy to industrial policy to environmental policy to healthcare policy, we have an opportunity here to say, hey, we can move really quickly and profoundly when we want to. So uh, as they say, don't waste a good crisis. I, I think this crisis is tailor-made for us to make really, uh, to break through and make some, some strong policy moves that really we should have been making a long time ago but didn't maybe have the political will or or um, um, maybe the con the confidence that we could do so i think people realize we can do that yeah that's a, that's a good point and uh, daniel if i could and then i'll turn to you um one of the proposals that you specifically have had in the ndp and you yourself have had is for a national pharmacare program which i think uh, was something that the liberals were um maybe yes maybe no how does the COVID-19 crisis impact that? Is that something that now moves up the ladder of possibilities uh, or does it go down the ladder? Oh, I, I think it definitely goes up. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, uh, you know, I think, again, one of the things I think people have really come to, to um, light or to, to rely upon in the current crisis is, is the, the public institutions we have in this country, primarily our healthcare system. Our public healthcare system. So I think right now you've got, you know, 37 million Canadians who really, really treasure the fact that we've got a strong, a strong public healthcare system, and that would prime them for an expansion. Second of all, I think, you know, I, I for five years I've been, you know, hammering away that 20% of Canadians do not have uh, pharmaceutical coverage through their employment. 
Um, now, the 80% of Canadians who do, depending on how much they're paying attention or care, maybe weren't as affected by that. Well, what we've seen in the past month or two is millions of Canadians who have uh, been laid off or lost their jobs and maybe have lost their job-based benefits. So I think it's a it presents a really good opportunity for people to realize the precariousness of, of employment-based benefits. And that's another reason why um, shifting pharmaceutical coverage to our public health care system so that it's universal and not dependent on the vagaries of your employment status uh, might be, I think, um, it might be, uh, I think, more real to people, to many more people now. So, and the last thing I'm, I'm going to say this all the time is that it saves money. You know, I mean, we've had study after study that shows that by reorganizing the way we deliver pharmaceuticals in this company, we can save, according to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, $4 billion a year at least. So we can cover every Canadian, save billions of dollars. Um, I think the time is now, and I've said it's one of the first priorities that I'm going to have when Parliament resumes some semblance of normalcy, to say, let's accelerate that. And Finally, on that, I would say that the Hoskins report, which was a liberal-appointed um, commission, uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins himself recognized that we should go to single-payer pharmacare, and he laid out a, a timeline for that. What I would say is let's accelerate that timeline. He was calling for a phase-in of covering all Canadians for essential drugs by the end of 2022. Maybe we move that up to the end of uh, 2021 or maybe even the end of this year. Well, Don, I'm just going to go back a little bit to your previous uh, qu question that that Bill asked you about the universal benefits. So, I, I, and I two part question. One is um, when we look at what just happened with the CERB, the funding that's being provided to Canadians uh, who've lost their employment. I know the NDP were pushing for a universal benefit, it's effectively everybody would get two thousand dollars, and then it would be clawed back at the end of the tax. Which actually, I think, is not a was a pretty good suggestion if, if you uh, if you ask me, but the government decided not to do that. They moved towards more of a boutique and more of a targeted uh, program. So I wouldn't mind if you could comment on that in the context of, when I hear about universal benefits, I hear um, you and others push for that. The, the one question I have for you, when I hear you talk about efficiencies and, and you say the, the, the right will like the efficiencies and the left, the progressives will like the universality of it, Part of the, the pushback I hear from folks is it's a no win for government because the progressives will never think the universal benefit pays enough. And if you end up having those efficiencies, you're gonna have a lot of people in the public service who are gonna get laid off. And I'm, I'm assuming PSAC and other unions will really push against something like universal benefits. So how do you respond to those, uh, those comments? Yeah, well, I mean, like all public policy issues, there's, there's pros and cons. And I think those are some valid concerns um, on the CERB, um, you know, I, I, I can't understand why the Liberals were so resistant to to what we thought was um, uh, clearly the fastest, fairest, least bureaucratic way to get money out to folks quickly in a, in a time of crisis. And, and by the way, we've even refined our position, Daniel. We, we've suggested that um, when the $2,000 paid to every adult, you can give people an option of declining it if they don't really need it. Uh, and then... And secondarily, you can clot back from them next tax year. And by the way, I would add that we we proposed two hundred and fifty dollars per child as well. Um, that that would have, you know, instead of playing this catch up game, you know, the first the first um, uh, edition of CERB left out lots of people. You know, if you made fifty dollars a month, you didn't qualify for CERB. Your income may have been 
reduced by 90%, but because you had a part-time job, you didn't qualify. It left out students, it left out um, seasonal workers, it left out um, artists and performers who, and contract workers. So we've, we've had to plug these holes with the result that, you know, there are people still in Canada, you know, who have gone six, seven, eight weeks without any pay because of that, could have cured that. To your, your second question about concerns, I'm not so worried about the effect on um, on um, civil servants who who are you know presently administering the myriad of different programs, the EIs, the the you know the, the social assistance program, the disabilities. I don't think I haven't heard that is to be frank with you from any union that they're concerned about that. Um, in terms of whether people would be happy with the amount, you're probably right. Probably there'll always be people who will say it's not enough. But I think if you peg the amount at the poverty level um, so that we can at least ensure that there's nobody in this country who doesn't have at least sufficient income every year to put them above the poverty level, I think you'd get broad agreement from all sides of the spectrum that that would be sufficient. And, you know, let's start there. Um, you know, in, in some ways we already have, we have different versions of uh, guaranteed annual income on everybody's tax return. You know, everybody has their minimum amount of income you can make before you're taxed. I, I think this year is at nine or ten thousand dollars. So, so already we have a recognition, or, or with old age security, everyone who hits sixty five, we give them an automatic you know, seven thousand dollars. So we have versions of this. I think it's just time to say, look, you know, we live in a G seven country. We're we're one of the wealthiest countries on earth. Um, really, we shouldn't live in a country where anybody is living below, below the poverty line. Uh, let's address that. And I, I think this opportunity with COVID-19 um, kind of shows that when we want to do it, we can do it. So how about trying it as a pilot program? I think uh, Senator Siegel had proposed that, you know, bring it in for three years, tinker with it, test it, see what the problems are, and you can always uh, make adjustments if you need to. But I, I think we should be innovative about this, these kind of programs, and try new things. Don, uh, uh, first of all, I'll be waiting for the CCPA news release right after this show comes out saying Don Davies has to increase the amount. Um, but uh, on a more serious topic, we've seen uh, President Donald Trump in the United States uh, condemning the World Health Organization, cutting off all its funding in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, clearly a, a great concern. Um, what's your response to, to the president's rather uh, dramatic move? I don't agree with it. Uh, you know, I think um, I don't think we can look to President Trump as a model of of, of appropriate reaction to to many issues, but notably, I, I think there's pretty universal consensus that uh, he's done a, a, a pretty poor job from the beginning of the COVID nineteen crisis. So there's no lessons to be learned from him on this. Look, um, we live in a global world. Pandemics and viruses they don't know any borders. Uh, so is there a role for a for a global central sort of uh, repository of information and guidance? Uh, absolutely. In fact, I think I think never before have we seen um, a greater need for that. Does it mean that that the WHO doesn't need uh, reforms or that they that they didn't make mistakes? Absolutely not. And I think there'll be plenty of time after we get COVID nineteen behind us. Uh, to do a mandatory assessment on the international level and on the national level to to see what we did well and what we didn't do well in this crisis. And, um, you know, the WHO at its best should be a place where nations can feed information into it um, and the WHO can be 
um, can disseminate that information to other nations and, and as a coordinating body. As we saw, uh, the COVID-19 virus hit different countries at different times. You know, we saw it ravage China, then we saw it ravage Italy, and then Spain and France. I think that's one of the reasons Canada is actually uh, so far, knock on wood, done quite well, is that we, we were able to see those examples and learn from them. And so the WHO can and should be doing a better job at that. Um, and so can the federal government. I mean, I think here in Canada, we were slow to close our borders. We were slow to um, have travel restrictions. We were slow to recognize community transmission and asymptomatic transmission. We were slow to adopt the, uh, the use of masks. Uh, you know, these were all things that came through our, uh, our, our chief public health officer. So I think there's things to, to look at there, including our stockpile of emergency equipment, which I was focusing on this week at health committee. Uh, which has been left to languish we've done a, a rotten job managing our emergency stockpile and uh, successive governments have been bad at that over at the federal level over decades so you know plenty of lessons to learn at at the at the national and international level and and i think uh, we should roll our sleeves up as soon as this is over and get to work on getting ready for the next phase because from what everybody tells us there will be one and uh, just if I could follow that, you mentioned uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, our national public health officer. Um, she's been under attack by uh, a conservative MP who is hardly a household name, uh, Derek Sloan, who's also apparently a leadership candidate. Um, fairly strong condemnation from uh, many people, but not from Andrew Scheer, the leader of the conservatives, not from any of the leadership candidates as of taping today. Uh, what's your response to, to Derek Sloan's uh, allegations that uh, Dr. Tam's loyalties are in question. Well, I, quite frankly, I thought it was appalling. Um, uh, I thought it was it was not even dog whistle politics. It bordered on outright, outright racism. You know, there was an insinuation that Dr. Tam's loyalties might be in question between Canada and China, and I think that was squarely in reference uh, to her her background. And I was very disappointed that Andrew Scheer didn't condemn it unequivocally. I was glad to see Prime Minister Trudeau did, and our leader Jagmeet Singh did as well. You know, there's there's lots of room in politics for hard-hitting criticisms. I I really respect different political perspectives and think that we we've got to be able to ask hard questions. But there are lines to be drawn, and I think uh, you know when when someone is is uh, raising issues of ethnicity or race or any of the other kinds of similar attributes as part of the political discourse, I, I think we have to be very quick to condemn it and stamp it out. And I condemn Mr. Sloan's comments unequivocally myself. So Don, I, I also, I'm in agreement with you, but I, I think there is a camp of folks who just feel like don't give the mission and don't uh, speak about him and he'll go away, <laughs> you know, but I agree, I can see there's two different camps. Definitely on that. Uh, just switching gears a little bit to uh, this virtual parliament. So I haven't, I must admit, I haven't been following it as closely as I should have. I have been watching the news. I've been seeing you guys, some of you, uh, on the floor of the House of Commons. This was a big raging debate last week, I believe, around whether or not this virtual parliament could actually take place. The Conservatives, I think, were pushing for more uh, sittings, physical sittings in the House. Can you give our, our viewers and listeners a bit of an update on where we're at with that? And the second part of the question is, 
Do you think virtual parliament will ever go away after COVID? Is there something that you guys are learning around perhaps not getting on a plane and having carbon emissions and flying all the way to Ottawa to be able to still participate in our uh, parliamentary democracy? Is there something there for the environment we can learn about how parliament can work virtually? You know, I, I, I think that there's, again, I, when I was mentioning before of the many lessons to be learned, that's, that's another profoundly important one is if we're smart, I think we can take the best of what we've experienced over the last couple of months and we can make them permanent. Um, I, I don't draw too long of a bow here, but I'd be curious to see what our carbon emissions have been like in the past couple of months with reduced air travel, less, you know, fewer car trips, more biking and walking, more working from home. And although I think a lot of us are itching to get back into the workplace and getting a little stir crazy, is it working out of our homes? Um, I think the opportunity for us to 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 do more of that uh, work from home and virtual meetings is is it is here to stay, and I think it's a very positive development for a lot of reasons. Uh, could that apply to Parliament? Absolutely. I, I don't see any reason why a Parliament would be any different than any other workplace. Um, so I'm hoping that that we can uh, we can make some adjustments and reforms to the way we do our work. Uh, that are more family friendly, that respect the environment more, that are more efficient. Um, I, I want to put a pin in this to come back to talk about virtual healthcare because I think that's uh, something I, I passionately think is, a, is a, a very, very important innovation that we need to take out of this. Um, how is it working right now in Parliament? Um, after all the going back and forth, I think the parties um, ended up agreeing to one physical sitting per week, but with very, very reduced quorum. So we in the NDP are still going to send only three MPs to the House, and those have to be MPs who are within driving distance of Ottawa. So someone like me in Vancouver, we're not boarding any commercial <laughs> flights to go there. And you're not um, driving And then either. there'll be two. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. And, uh, and then there's two virtual um, sittings a week that allow for question periods. Uh, and I think we're, we've adopted a, a, a modified form of question period where we're taking the process that's used when we use Committee of the Whole, which is a five-minute back and forth between the questioner and a minister, as opposed to the 35-second gotcha kind of uh, process we use in QP. So I think there'll be a better quality of question period. Um, so not only have we gone virtual, but I think we've taken the opportunity to actually improve on the process that we have. If I can say a word about virtual healthcare. Uh, I don't think healthcare is ever going to be the same. I've heard estimates that 25, at least 25% of healthcare can now be delivered virtually. And I think the opportunity to deliver quality healthcare to people in remote and rural areas is, is here to stay. One of the examples someone gave me is, let's say you know, you've had a, a wound and you got stitched up and you have to go back to your doctor a month later or your doctor to check on it. Well, what do we do now? Yeah leave work, you take two hours, drive across town, doctor's office, wait in the waiting room, go in, show up five minutes with your doctor and you leave. Well, now you can book that and, uh, you know, put your elbow up, you know, to the screen, the doctor can take a look at it and uh, be way more efficient for everybody concerned. Um, so I think the opportunities um, to, to really expand virtual healthcare uh, to make it cheaper and better and more more effective uh, are are really really there for us. It's quite exciting, I think. So, I don't think a workplace is going to be untouched, Daniel, by the opportunities for 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 virtual uh, connection, and I think that's a good thing. 
Don, uh, I, I had, wanted to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Daniel. Before I hand it back to Don, I know we're running close thought to the end of time here, but just a quick question for you, Don. Just to that point, you're you're well known as a very good retail politician. You're in the community. I'm I'm told by people they see you everywhere at all the chicken dinners and backyard barbecues, etc. <laughs> what what been COVID? How's it been impacting you as a member of parliament in your own riding? Like what's been your experience in terms of the whole self-isolation and, and the dis disconnect between yourself and constituents? Can you let our, our viewers know that? Well, well, thank you for the, for the, for the, the kind words, Daniel. Um, um, well, it's definitely affected us and we've had to really pivot and, and find innovative ways of connecting. So I, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of my colleagues from all the parties are doing this. You know, we're using FaceTime Live to connect. Um, uh, I, I'm answering a lot of correspondence. And uh, for the past couple of weeks, I've had my staff put together lists of people in our community uh, that I can phone. So I've been just cold calling people in our community to check in with them and to see how they're doing and what input they may have. Um, social media, of course, has it's always important to, to politicians. I think it's become even more so. And... Uh, Geez, I have at least four Zoom meetings a day. So, you know, meetings like this, it's a form of connecting. But, you, you, you know, if, if, if you were implying this, Daniel, I, I agree with you that nothing ever takes the place of face-to-face of -face and, and physical connection. And I think that's starting to weigh on people and people are missing that. So it would be nice to sort of try to, I think everybody's waiting to try to get back to um, some phased-in period of social connection in real life as soon as we can without without going too fast and jeopardizing safety. But it's definitely changed the way we practice politics, no question. Don, I wanted to ask you a bit broader question of some importance to British Columbians and something that's very current. Um, the federal government, of course, has provided the CERB emergency benefit, 75% uh, of wages, but it does not apply to transit workers, uh, bus drivers, transit operators, uh, BC ferries, uh, anything that's government run. And I know that Premier Horgan, John Horgan from British Columbia has been trying to convince the federal government to expand that program. I'm sure that other provinces which have transit and, and uh, ferry operations are doing the same. Do you think there's some possibility of having some success there? Uh, because the alternative, as the TransLink had Kevin Desmond said, uh, is uh, massive losses and almost no transit service. Uh, what, what's your view of how that might play out? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, it goes back to the, the NDP proposal We've been hammering away at a universal benefit. So, so we avoid these kinds of cherry pickings and exclusions that are going on. Just send 2000 bucks to everybody. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do the accounting next year. You know, whatever the cutoff would be, let's say it's, I don't know, it's 60, 70, $80,000 per individual, maybe, maybe 100,000 per family, and you start clawing it back. That's what we continue to argue. Um, every time Jagmeet Singh meets with Prime Minister Trudeau, he conveys that message. We think that's the best way. And it's funny because, you know, Mr. Trudeau kept, he keeps refusing the concept, but he keeps moving inexorably towards it. You know, by the time we, we, we keep filling the gaps, we'll end up at some form of uh, universal coverage. But, but you point out, uh, Bill, exactly, you know, another major area where, where the gap in the CERB is creating real hardship and, and frankly risks significant substantial economic harm. So um, we're going to keep working at it. And is there a chance that can happen? I, I suppose yes. Um, again, I, I don't think Mr. Trudeau has been moving because he necessarily wants to. I think he's moving because he has to and because he sees that 
the uh, the gaps in the CERB are identified by the public. And so he's had to make those moves. So maybe this is another one that he'll be compelled to make in the weeks well, ahead. I'm, I'm hoping he will. Well, as uh, big supporters of transit with Daniel, I hope so. Uh, Don Davies, MP for Venker Kingsway and Health Critic, we want to really thank you for joining us, uh, taking the time out, and good luck with everything that's going on, either virtually or literally in Ottawa. <laughs> thank you, Bill. Thank you, Daniel. Keep up the good work and stay well. BC Polytalk thanks Harbor Air for supporting the show. It's through sponsorship and viewer support that we get to produce this show. Daniel, that was a really fascinating discussion. Uh, Don Davies, very knowledgeable, a veteran member of parliament and an expert on the health side as the health critic for the NDP for a long time. Uh, there was so much to dig in there. I'm not really sure where to start, but I think I will say this. Uh, I thought that what he had to say about having a universal wage or a universal guaranteed income uh, was uh, really, it's, it's like the world has changed so much in just six, eight weeks. I think it's really more of a possibility than ever before. Well, I would argue, Bill, that the world changes by the hour now, almost, I think weeks are too long <laughs> right. because of COVID. You just uh, turn around and something completely new is there. But you're right. I think he raises a good point. I mean, I think we're going to look and come out of this and ask ourselves whether or not that is something that we want to move uh, toward. But as I noted, I think once the dust settles, there are, there are always critics of this universal program. We've heard about this before. And although he kind of dismissed the concerns of PSAC, an efficient uh, universal program means that a lot of other programs are not going to be run. It's just going to be one single program for a flat fee uh, or a flat uh, revenue for the folks who are receiving it. So I still think it would have a lot of hurdles if it was done in a permanent way, but he does raise a good point. And he also, he didn't uh, put too fine a point on it, but did kind of, you know, I mean, all the politicians are trying to be a bit careful about attacking each other these days, but he did he did raise the good point that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that the Liberals said they didn't want to accept the NDP policy of, of opening up CERB to pretty much everybody, he did say that pretty much now that they've been filling in the gaps that almost everybody is now covered under the program. So they've gotten there. It's just taken many more steps than the NDP probably would have liked. Yeah. And I have to say, Daniel, the labor movement, which I come out of, uh, has always had a, a longstanding position in favor of a, of a guaranteed annual income. So I, I don't think it's as big as an, ob an obstacle as you think. But of course, uh, we're not also talking about government shrinking. I'm sure that other people would move into other positions or other spending would take place. So, uh, But I think the fact that Don made was a good one, that it would be more efficient and save money uh, if it was implemented, as opposed to it just being an expensive program is, is important. Um, I also thought very interesting some of his comments on, on the virtual parliament, which you raised. Uh, I, you know, again, I don't see the sense in uh, 340, 50 people plus staff, plus families flying back and forth constantly to Ottawa when, you know, why don't we do one week on, one week off, virtual and, and physical in the future when it's safe again to travel and to be together. To me, it makes no sense, just like I'm still in favor of electronic voting uh, in elections, but uh, hopefully this will bring some change. Yeah, and while I don't think anyone would uh, support continuing the lockdown as a, a method of improving our climate, there there have been some obviously mm -hmm. uh, some positive impacts. We're seeing reports around the world where the the air is as clean as it's ever been in some major urban centers. But we know that's not sustainable over the long haul. But I think there are some lessons that we can learn from this. So it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to stay the where we are. But do we really need our parliamentarians, for example, from British Columbia, to be flying and uh, emitting carbons and going to Ottawa? merely to vote on uh, several bills and then coming back. So I'm hoping that some of the lessons we take out of this COVID will have a positive impact for our environment for years to come. 
Yeah, and as you and I know, as, as veteran political watchers and our listeners and, and viewers will know, the votes are kind of, you can kind of count them in advance uh, on most party issues where you know where the party stands. So just being there to raise your hand is not necessarily worth a, a cross-Canada flight. I think the other thing which is interesting that, again, moves up uh, on the agenda is a National Pharmacare Program. I think people are really recognizing the importance of our, not just our whole public health care system, but also the need for medicines. I mean, uh, we need a vaccine for COVID-19. It has to be developed. It is being worked on. And you start thinking more about the fact that, uh, as Don said, about 20% of people in Canada don't have any pharmacare coverage or pharmacy coverage at all, uh, pharmaceuticals, and they need that drug coverage um, on a regular basis. Yeah, Bill, he raised a very good point. Uh, in a pandemic when so many people have lost their jobs and been disconnected with their employer and lost their benefits, um, boy, a, a national pharmacare program sure does kind of come to light in terms of its importance. So I think it's been a great conversation with him this week. I look forward to uh, coming back next week. I know we're going to have another great guest. So thanks uh, very much, Bill. Uh, it's been another great week. We'll talk to you next. And thank you, Daniel. And uh, thanks to all our listeners and viewers for tuning in. And remember, you can find everything at our website, bcpolytalk.ca. You can also chase us down on Spotify and iTunes for podcasts. You can find us on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find links there. You can go to YouTube and see the show. 